Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Gileadi, Ph.D. 30. Types of the Coming of Christ Do the scriptures contain foreshadowings of Jesus' second coming to the earth that inform Latter-day Saints of what the events of His coming will be like? Welcome to this last Book of Mormon podcast, Book of Mormon Isaiah podcast, number 30. Thank you for listening and hope you've enjoyed the series, and with this one, we're done. First, we go to Isaiah, chapter 59, 19 through 20. Jehovah comes as Redeemer to Zion. There are a couple of prophecies from Isaiah here. It says, From the west, men will fear Jehovah omnipotent, and from the rising of the sun, his glory. In other words, it's a universal coming in glory. For he will come upon them like a hostile torrent, impelled by the Spirit of Jehovah. The word torrent in the book of Isaiah is a word link to other such words that define the actions of the king of Assyria and the great Antichrist of the end time. We're familiar with prophecy like the coming of the Lord is going to be like a thief in the night. So you've got to read these things into it because the Lord is not a thief and he's not a hostile torrent impelled by the Spirit of Jehovah. So... For in both cases, it's the king of Assyria, or the king of Babylon. And this tyrannical world ruler is going to come upon the wicked like a hostile torrent. And he's coming upon the nations of the world like a thief in the night, because he conquers the world and robs all of their wealth. But he is impelled by the Spirit of the Lord, because the Lord uses him as his instrument of punishment. On the other side of the equation... He will come as a redeemer to Zion, it says. He will come as a redeemer to Zion to those of Jacob who repent of transgression. Now, then you have to define Zion. What is Zion here? Well, Isaiah tells you in the same part of the verse. To those of Jacob who repent of transgression. Well, then you have to ask, well, who is Jacob? Well, Jacob are those lost and fallen peoples of the house of Israel who are going to newly come into God's covenant and be accepted into the covenant, become his covenant people again. And they're going to then be gathered when they believe in him. They're going to be gathered, as we've discussed in previous podcasts. And then they're going to be led in an exodus, a new exodus through the wilderness to lands of inheritance, which they end up enjoying as permanent inheritances during the millennial age. So there's a lot going on in this verse, isn't there? I'm going to read it again so you can kind of internalize it. From the West, men will fear Jehovah omnipotent, the God in his power, from the rising of the sun, his glory. He will come upon them like a hostile torrent impelled by the Spirit of Jehovah. Yes, number one, that's upon the wicked. But he will come as Redeemer to Zion, to those of Jacob who repent of transgression. And of course, Zion is also the pure in heart and all the other things, the other definitions of Zion that we have from other scriptures. And also, Zion is a place where the righteous, the elect of God, those who are sanctified, gather to safety in the great day of judgment that's coming upon the world. Next we go to Isaiah 62, 10 through 12, preparing for Jehovah's coming to Zion. There's a preparation that goes on before he comes, as we've discussed in previous podcasts. He doesn't just come all at once, out of nowhere. There's a preparation, when that preparation is finished, then he comes to a people who are prepared to meet him, to see him, to interact with him, without being unworthy and, and dying in his presence. He's coming in glory. Pass on, go through the gates, the gates of the nations, the people. Prepare a way for the people. 
will prepare the way for the people, will also prepare the way for Jehovah's coming, for Jesus' coming. But the people have to be prepared to meet him. Excavate, pave a highway cleared of stones. And what's that about? Well, we need to have a highway ready for the Lord to come on and for the people to return on to Zion, to the place of Zion. As they come in an exodus, they have to be prepared. And the stones, what are they? Cleared of what stones? The stumbling stones, well, spiritual stumbling stones for one, but for another, also celestial people, because Isaiah uses the stones and minerals, metals imagery, to define three categories of people, precious, semi-precious, and common metals and stones. So in other words, the celestial stones have to be cleared out of the way. We have to become a pure people, and this is a preparatory work the work of restoration of the house of Israel, bring them up to a Zion level. Bring them up at least to a terrestrial level. Because these stones are telestials. And, and possibly even to a celestial level. Precious variety. It says, raise the ensign to the nations. Excavate, pave a highway, clear the stones. Raise the ensign to the nations. That means the ensign to the nations, which we know from word links in the book of Isaiah, defines the Lord's end-time servant. And his mission is to the nations or to the Gentiles. It's a universal event, as we've discussed. At his coming is that's when that preparation happens. And that's clear from this passage. Jehovah has made proclamation to the end of the earth. Universal event. And he's made it through his servant, who he makes it through his servant. Tell the daughter of Zion, see, your salvation comes. His reward with him, his work preceding him. The daughter of Zion are those house of Israel peoples who are newly coming into the Lord's covenant through the ministry of the Ephraimite Gentiles, kings and queens that minister to them spiritually. They're newly coming into the covenant, therefore called the daughter of Zion. The Lord has two wives, the current wife who turns into a whore, and then the new wife or the one he had married in her youth who are the Lord's covenant people who rejected him, and they were, as it were, divorced from him for a long time. Now they're received back, or at least her daughter is. And so you have this daughter imagery of a, of a young woman that is the inheritor of the Israelite covenant. See, your salvation comes. Well, your Jesus comes, because he personifies salvation. He is Jesus. Jehovah is salvation in the book of Isaiah. All salvation emanates from him, both spiritual and temporal salvation. And it says, his reward is with him, his work preceding him. So he comes to reward. And as we know, he comes to reward the righteous with a reward of their righteousness and the wicked with a reward of wickedness through the agency of the king of Assyria and other ways that he punishes them. His work preceding him. And that is the great and marvelous work that of restoration of the house of Israel that has to happen before he can come. And it says, they shall be called the holy people. Well, yes, sanctified of him, the elect of God, the redeemed of Jehovah. And you shall be known as in demand, city never deserted. So these are the elect of God that come in the Exodus and inherit lands of promise. And they shall be called the holy people. And you shall be known as in demand, a city never deserted, because in the past 
they were never in demand, right? They were rejected by humanity, by and large. The Lord's covenant people have been rejected. The Jews, the Ten Tribes, the Lamanites, they've been on the low rung of society, and they were kind of left alone. They were deserted, but now they're never going to be deserted. The city never deserted. Then we go to Acts, the book of Acts, number 1, verses 9 through 11. As Jesus ascended to the heaven, so he will descend again. And this we learn from what happens when the apostles are staring up into heaven. As it says, when he had spoken these things, last words to the apostles of Jesus, that is, he spent 40 days with them, as you know, after his resurrection, teaching them again. At the end of that time, they went up on the mount, and when he had spoken these things, they, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked up steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So these two angels tell us, just like he went in a cloud, straight up, so he's coming again down from heaven. And then it says, similarly, in Matthew 24, verse 30, where Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. He says, They shall see the Son of Man, speaking of himself, coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Well, that's this time around, right? He was resurrected before he had paid the price of people's transgressions. And this time he comes around in his ascent phase, in all his glory, to the earth, to reign upon the earth, to dwell upon the earth, among his people called Zion. Now, where have we seen Jesus come down so far from heaven to the earth? Well, the Book of Mormon tells us, right? He came down among them in that very same manner. 3 Nephi 8, verses 3 through 6. The Nephites look for the sign of Jesus' coming. It says, The people began to look with great earnestness for the sign which had been given by the prophet Samuel the Lamanite. Yea, for the time that there should be darkness for the space of three days over the face of the land, and there began to be great doubtings and disputations among the people, notwithstanding so many signs had been given. Well, you know, it, <laughs> the Lord has this way of keeping the law of the last minute, right? And why does he do that? Well, to test us, test people. And who would be causing doubtings and disputations anyway, if it were not the unbelievers, the wicked? And what do they do with that? Well, they persecute the righteous, thinking that, that he's not coming, and they even threaten to kill them if the signs don't happen. You know the pattern, how it goes. So they turn to violence in the end. And it came to pass in the thirty and fourth year, in the first month, on the fourth day of the month, there arose a great storm, such a one as had never been known in all the land. And there was also a great and terrible tempest, and there was terrible thunder, insomuch that it shaked the whole earth as if it was about to divide asunder. Now, if this is a type of his coming, then it's both good and bad, right? On the one hand, this huge destruction and the storm imagery, of course, is in Isaiah. The earthquakes are also in Isaiah, and so on. This cataclysmic destruction that accompanied Jesus coming to the Nephites is also something that is going to repeat itself, because the Book of Mormon is full of these types for the end time. 
So let's read on what it says. 3 Nephi 8, verses 11 through 15. A terrible destruction at Jesus' coming. There was a great and terrible destruction in the land southward. That behold, there was a more great and terrible destruction in the land northward. Behold, the whole face of the land was changed because of the tempest and the whirlwinds and the thunderings and the lightnings and the exceeding great quaking of the whole earth. And the highways were broken up and the level roads were spoiled and many smooth places became rough. Many great notable cities were sunk and many were buried and many were shaken till the buildings thereof had fallen to the earth and the inhabitants thereof were slain and the places were left desolate. And there were some cities which remained but the damage thereof was exceedingly great and there were many in them who were slain. What do we suppose then? When it says a great and terrible destruction, those words, a great and terrible, what do they remind you of? The great and terrible day of the Lord, right? That Malachi and other prophets like Isaiah predict. So, of course, in Hebrew, it's not actually great for the righteous and terrible for the wicked. When it says great and terrible, it means greatly terrible. Or a great and marvelous work is the greatly marvelous work. That's kind of how the Hebrew translates into English. So the quaking of the whole earth, cities were sunk. You go off the coast of Belize, you see the western cities of the Nephites. They're sunk under the ocean there. And those who've gone down have seen these wonderful pyramid cities there of the uh, original inhabitants. All right, so let's move on to 3 Nephi 11, 8 through 11 where Jesus descends out of heaven to earth. They cast their eyes up again toward heaven because they heard the voice, the voice of the Father. And behold, they saw a man descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe. And he came down and stood in the midst of them, and the eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon him. And they durst not open their mouths, even one to another, and wist not what it meant, for they thought it was an angel that had appeared unto them. It came to pass that he stretched forth his hand and spake unto the people, saying, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And behold, I am the light and life of the world, and I have drunk of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me, and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. So right there, what is he communicating to them? He's communicating what kind of a person he is, right? They see him coming, as it were, out of heaven, so they know he's an exalted being. At least they thought it was an angel at first. But no, he comes down, hides his glory somewhat, so they can see him. And then he says, I'm the one that the prophets testified of. But he drank the bitter cup. And as Paul says, he declares that I am the light and life of the world. In other words, he's the one that holds the entire world in being, even them. And he's also the light of Christ that enlightens the people who live upon the earth. And he says that he has drunk the bitter cup. He suffered for our transgressions, both in the Garden of Gethsemane and also implying that he was crucified on the cross, which they knew from the prophecy that he would be. Their own Nephite prophets had predicted that. And also Isaiah contains much of that information that informed them. But in doing so, he's glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world. And this is the part that we should learn from. He has suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. We need to ask ourselves, what kind of a being was he? Are we that kind of being? Are we willing to suffer the will of the Father in all things? 
it kind of tells us, and that using the word suffer, that there's pain involved, right? There's pain involved, the bitter cup. Elder Maxwell said, but he drank the bitter cup without turning bitter. And so it is for us. Mortality sometimes becomes very bitter, but it is for our good. It is for the very best, because through it, we can sanctify our bodies, overcome all evil through Christ Jesus' atonement, and then rise to a much higher spiritual level than we ever were before. Mortality really is the optimum environment for spiritual growth and for attaining the Father's will. And what is the Father's will? That we might be glorified, that we might inherit what He has and become like Him. Isn't that something to strive for? Okay, next we go to 3 Nephi 11, 16 through 17. The Nephites fall down and worship Jesus. And when they had all gone forth and had witnessed for themselves, they did cry out with one voice, with one accord, saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. And they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. What's going on there? Well, they received a personal witness of him, even invited them. They put their fingers in the wounds of his hands and feet so that they would know that it was him. And what happened to them? Why would they all be crying out with one accord? Well, because the Holy Spirit impelled them. They couldn't hold back. They had to just burst out, saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God, glorifying the Father at the feet of Jesus. Next we go to 3 Nephi 21, 23 through 25, where Jesus comes to dwell among his people. Jesus speaking here is they referring to the Gentiles, or the Ephraimite Gentiles. They shall assist my people, the remnant of Jacob, that's the house of Israel in its fallen state, but coming into the covenant, and also as many of the house of Israel as shall come, as want to come, right? As shall come. Come where? Well, in the new exodus to Zion. When they believe, right? First they have to believe, and then they're gathered out. That they may build a city which shall be called the New Jerusalem, in the center of the land, and then shall they assist my people, that is, his covenant people, of the house of Israel, that they may be gathered in, who are scattered upon all the face of the land, in unto the new Jerusalem. We know, of course, that they're not gathered to lands of inheritance until they believe in him through the ministry of the Lord's end-time servants, kings and queens of the Gentiles, spiritual kings and queens of the Gentiles. And then the Lord gathers them. The first a belief in him, then the physical gathering. And when do they believe in him anyway? It's when the more part of us, of the Lord's people, who are currently his covenant people, reject him because of the precepts of men and turn away from him. Then the gospel turns to the house of Israel, the natural lineages. And they're the ones who are gathered into the new Jerusalem. And this is, And then shall the power of heaven come down among them, and I also will be in the midst. So he comes to them. He comes to Zion. As we know, the Zion is never established among Latter-day Saints established among the house of Israel, but there are those of us who help them to establish it. Right, so now we're going to go to the book of Moses, chapter 7, verses 15 through 18. See what happened there when the Lord came to Zion, to Enoch's Zion. The Lord's glory is upon his people Zion. It says, there went forth a curse upon all the people that fought against God. Well, you know that Enoch was commanded by the Lord to go and preach to seven nations who are in a state of wickedness and abominations. That's a pretty ominous challenge. 
you're going people who are full of abominations. But, you know, out of them came a people, a righteous people. Out of them came converts, just like there'll be converts from the house of Israel through our ministry. If we're going to be like Enoch's going out to do the same work that Enoch did and bring these people to become a covenant people of the Lord. But then, of course, they had enemies, of course. Their old friends and even family members disagreed, and they thought Enoch was a strange thing in the land and a wild man. What are you doing going with that guy? He's fringe. All the usual arguments, you've seen them. They're everywhere today. So it says, There went forth a curse upon all people that fought against God. Because once good things start happening, the devil gets right in the mix. And from that time forth there were wars and bloodsheds among them. But the Lord came and dwelt with his people, and they dwelt in righteousness. So in other words, there was a separation between the righteous and the wicked at some point. But no doubt, you know, initially, that was a great test for the people who came into the covenant, the people who repented of their abominations and wickedness. And they were, you know, they had opposition from their own friends and from their family. So they were tested every which way again, the usual thing that the Lord does. And then when they were worthy and they had purified and sanctified their lives, and the opposition that they received helped them to rise above the evil and to remain loyal to the Lord in the face of all kinds of afflictions and persecutions, then the Lord came and dwelt among his people. And probably again, the law of the last minute, right? The fear of the Lord was upon all nations. So great was the glory of the Lord, which was upon his people. There it is again, his people, his covenant people, in other words, the covenant formula. And the Lord blessed the land, and they were blessed upon the mountains and upon the high places, and did flourish. And the Lord called his people Zion, because they were of one heart and one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. So they had repented of all their sins, they had expiated all their iniquities, all their dysfunctional patterns, all their curses that were upon them, that were inherited or brought by their own transgressions. They became so purified that they became Zion. There's that kind of Zion that needs to be established once again in order for the Lord to come. Then we'll read further in Moses 7, 20-21. Enoch's Zion is taken into heaven. The Lord said unto Enoch, Zion have I blessed, but the residue of the people have I cursed. There it is again. Destruction among the wicked, curses upon the wicked, punishments upon the wicked, but blessings upon the righteous, deliverance of the righteous. And it came to pass that the Lord showed unto Enoch all the inhabitants of the earth. So he's getting a cosmic vision here, which translated beings received from the Lord. And he beheld, and lo, Zion in process of time, not immediately, whereas there was more to do, more to be to establish, more to be sanctified, in process of time was taken up into heaven. And the Lord said unto Enoch, Behold, mine abode forever. And that is where the Lord dwells. He dwells this day in Zion, in Enoch's Zion. Next we read in verses 61 and 62 of Moses 7, Righteousness prepares the way for Jesus. This gives, gives added insight to what's going on with Enoch's sign and how it is a type and shadow for the end time. This pattern of the Lord establishing Zion among Enoch's people is a great type for the end time establishment of Zion. The day shall come that the earth shall rest, course, the earth itself is going through its own processes, right? So the earth is going to become a millennial or paradisical earth, terrestrial glory, 
But again, like people, it has to go through its descent phase, right? Time of chaos. And eventually the Lord will make, recreate it anew, just like he recreates us spiritually and even physically. And he's going to recreate the earth into millennial glory after it goes into a state of chaos during the time of destruction, during the time of the destruction of the wicked. But before that day, the heavens shall be darkened and the veil of darkness shall cover the earth. And that's the same kind of thing that happened among the Nephites, right? With the great destructions preceded his coming there to the land of Bountiful. And the heavens shall shake, and also the earth, and great tribulation shall be among the children of men. So this is going to be a worldwide thing now, not just in the Americas where the Nephites dwelt. But my people will I preserve. So among the wicked, the one, and then the people he preserves, his people, my people, the covenant people. This is interesting. Righteousness will I send out of heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the earth. Now we know you can't always apply other prophets' definitions to other scriptures, but in the book of Isaiah, righteousness is that servant. He personifies righteousness, who is a forerunner of salvation, prepares the way for the Lord's coming among God's people of the house of Israel. I will send righteousness out of heaven. We know that he's the angel from the east. And truth will I send forth out of the earth. And we know about ancient records that are going to come forth. Of course, they're going to come forth in their purity and convert the people of the house of Israel to bear testimony of my only begotten, that's of Christ, his resurrection from the dead, and also the resurrection of all men. And righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood. So it's a worldwide event, the mission of the Lord's servant, to gather out mine elect from the four quarters of the earth. Well, we know that's the house of Israel, but those are the house of Israel who repent and come up to being members of the church of the firstborn, the elect of God, just men made perfect, and women made perfect through that ministry of the end-time kings and queens. Unto a place which I shall prepare, a holy city, that my people may gird up their loins and be looking forth for the time of my coming. So they're going to be gathered in an exodus. We know that from other scriptures. The elect are. And they're going to go in a wandering in the wilderness and eventually end up in lands of promise. So there we are. It all coheres with other scriptures that we've read. And there shall be my tabernacle and it shall be called Zion, a new Jerusalem. And lastly, we go to Moses 7, 63 through 66. Enoch saw the coming of the Lord. That's the coming of the Lord in the end time, again. And the Lord said unto Enoch, Then shalt thou and all thy city meet them there. And so instead of us being received up into heaven like Enoch's city, they're going to come down and meet us here. And we will receive them into our bosoms. And they shall see us, and we will fall upon their necks. And they shall fall upon our necks, and we will kiss each other. Well, that, what does that sound like to you? That sounds like a wonderful family reunion, does it not? Of course it is. We're all children of God that are related to one another, ancestors and children, descendants, all falling upon each other's necks when the two Zions unite. The one from heaven meets the one established upon the earth. And then he says, There shall be mine abode, and it shall be called Zion, which shall come forth out of all the creations which I have made. And for the space of a thousand years the earth shall rest the thousand years, as I mentioned before, of terrestrial time, not telestial time. And it came to pass that Enoch saw the day of the coming of the Son of Man in the last days, or the end time, to dwell upon the earth in righteousness for the space of a thousand years, 
But before that day, he saw great tribulations among the wicked, and he also saw the sea that it was troubled, and men's hearts failing them, looking forth with fear for the judgments of the Almighty, which had come upon the wicked. Again, twofold event, destruction of the wicked and the deliverance of the righteous, the state of Zion, or holiness, and also the idea of fear here upon the wicked. The wicked fear, the righteous don't fear, for they trust in Jehovah. Even in the face of evil, they trust in him, bring good out of the evil. All they have to do is trust in Jesus alone, and then there's no fear. What's to fear? Because it'll all be God's will, and so it'll be all to the good, whatever it may be. So all the wicked, the celestial people, and the perdition types who don't repent, when they've had the opportunity to repent, they perish, and fear overtakes them, and fear itself is to kill you, you know, of course, as you know. And especially now with the uh, plague that's going around the world. Fear itself can just take you down. In summary, Jesus coming to the Nephites and to Enoch's Zion after a great destruction typifies his second coming. The time frame is looking forward to the end time from these ancient types that were given us to show us the pattern of how the Lord does things. Moving forward, are we in a state of repentance so we, we may welcome Jesus when he comes, as they were? And a recommended reading, End Time Prophecy, a Judeo-Mormon Analysis. And I hope that you have enjoyed being with us, and we thank you for listening, and may the Lord bless you and keep you and your families and preserve your lives through the coming times and see you straight into the millennial age through his divine design. Let us pray for that for all of us. I say this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the end of Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Gileadi. We have enjoyed sharing with you and hope this blesses your lives. God bless you until the next time.